Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into the book of Revelation. We are in chapter 20, which means we are getting closer to wrapping up our study on the book of Revelation, of course, with the help of Michael Barber's coming soon, Peter Williamson's commentary on the book of Revelation, as well as Scott Hahn's Lamb's Supper. Now, I speak to this because that means within a few weeks we're going to be starting some new programming, and like I did last time, I want to get some of your feedback. The reason why we carved out this time to study the book of Revelation is because that is what you requested, and what I want to do is essentially respond to my listening audience. So if there is something that is burning on your heart, some larger topic, and maybe it is another book, please let me know at J-H-O-L-L. JMJ at yahoo.com, or as always, you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org, J O E H O L L C R A F T.org, and just hit the contact link button there and send your request on, on its way. And, and it doesn't have to be just one thing, but it can be several things. Remember what we were doing before the book of Revelation? We were hitting different topics, one topic each night, and then we would develop that over a period of weeks and months. And so I am at your service. I certainly have a lot of things that are close to my heart right now that I, I want to talk about. And certainly the book of Revelation, while it be a request of yours, was something that was close to my heart. And it, it has been a joy for me to really get back into this book, the book of Revelation. And so, yeah, please do send your request, your suggestion, your comment, your observation on its way, and I will heed your thoughts and your reflections. And I might even encourage you to take it to prayer. Maybe there's something that you're unaware of right now, but by going to prayer, God puts something on your heart. If, if I see a topic pop up more than once, like I did with the book of Revelation, then I will respond to that. It doesn't mean just one topic over a course of three and a half, four months, like the book of Revelation. We can go back to parsing it out, if you will. So now before we jump back into chapter 20, I did want to respond to a question about the nature of apologetics we certainly dealt with this topic of apologetics on very specific programming, going through the various dimensions of it. But as the question comes to me, I do want to engage it, and it really is, what is apologetics, and how might I best understand the nature of apologetics? And I like the second part of the question, how might I better understand the nature of apologetics? Because it is in coming to understand what the word means that we can better understand what its nature is and then how we go about being a good apologist. The word apologetics comes from the Greek apologetikos, okay, which not only means defense or a formal defense, but what is defensible. If you're defending something that is impossible to defend, why are you doing what you are doing? Right? We talk about apologetics in the context of, yes, a formal defense, but also a formal defense to what is defensible. Right? And why talk about this? Because the Christian revelation, my friends, is what? Absolute truth. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
God is absolute. The moment you say to me that there's no such thing as absolutes, you are making an absolute statement to establish that there's no such thing as absolutes, right? <laughs> you see that? No matter which way you turn it, you're always going to come back to that one overarching truth that God is absolute. Now, we have to understand that the church in her tradition and her history has established this beautiful formal defense because it is defensible, because the Christian revelation is defensible, because Christ entered into human history. And this is a fact. If you want to get into some of the specifics of what I'm talking about now, please go back into my archives and the subject matter concerning apologetics. Now, there's something else about this that I think we uh, trip up in our apologetics if we don't appreciate it, and that is, while we are made to defend our Christian faith, and for those listeners, again, who are Catholic, our Catholic faith, we have to understand that sometimes the best defense is a great offense, right? What's my point? Well, I can spend all my time getting to know other faith traditions, other denominations, and what they believe, and have all the right answers, and have all the right quips, and and have all the good things to say. But if I don't know my own faith, then what good is it? You see, my friends, there can be a tendency today in apologetics to be so wrapped up in what other people believe and how to respond to that one question that we have forgotten about the much larger question, the much bigger question. If we better understand our Christian faith and better understand our Catholic faith, our apologetics is that much stronger. We are then really able to go on the offensive, if you will, preaching and teaching, evangelizing and catechizing. And in that sense, in that sense, getting to know our faith is quintessential because ultimately, in the end, apologetics has a ceiling if we don't have a deeper understanding of our own faith to turn to, you see. The deeper we go in our faith and the more we come to understand, the more free we are to actually engage the person who we are having the apologetic conversation with. We can ask them questions. For example, say a a Mormon comes to my door, and I've studied up on quote-unquote Mormon apologetics. Now, I can engage them specific to what I read about them and, and make the assumption that I best understand what they need to hear, or with a deeper understanding of our Christian and Catholic faith, why not ask questions? Why not ask the simple question, what is the most important aspect to your faith? Get them to take ownership and then enter deeper into the conversation. So say a Mormon says to me, the most important aspect is the kingdom of God. All right, maybe I wasn't expecting that, but because I know my faith, I can speak to the kingdom of God, huh? And then go deeper and deeper and deeper. Again, apologetics is not only about being on the defensive, but the offensive, and with it, the understanding that we engage in these conversations because we are engaging what is defensible, absolute truth. And always be mindful of engaging each and every conversation with questions, because this is what Jesus did, right? This is what Jesus did. Jesus was asked, 308 questions in the gospel. Think about that. Jesus was asked 308 questions, and you want to know how many times he answered the question with an actual answer? 
three times. He answered the question with a question 305 times. Why did he do that? Because he wanted the person who was asking the question to take ownership of what they were saying, to think critically about what they were saying. This is why it is so important for us to follow the master's lead, right? To understand that if we're going to be good apologists in the light of sacred scripture, we ask questions to make sure we are getting to the heart of the matter. That is what Jesus was about. He was the master teacher, Rabboni, huh? So this is what we ought to imitate in our apologetic conversations. And why was Jesus able to do this? Because, of course, <laughs> he had anything and everything that he needed to know at his fingertips. This is why we study our Christian and Catholic faith. Okay, so before this whole program is a response to that one question, let us jump back into the book of Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. So if you have your Bibles out there, turn to chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom judgment was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony to Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life, and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. Okay, so what can we say here? Well, just as the 24 elders as we have already spoken to it, sat on thrones. The saints sit on thrones here. But Michael Barber asks an important question in his reflections. Who are these people? Well, in keeping with our prior reflection that the thousand years represents the time from David to Christ, these must be the prophets and Old Testament martyrs. Certainly we hear echoes of the phrase, those who are beheaded to John the Baptist, right? Who was the final and greatest prophet. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than who? John the Baptist. So, my friends, the baptizer then embodies all the prophets who were killed for their witness to God. Likewise, those who did not worship the beast or his image refers to those Jews who refused to bow to the orders of pagan rulers to worship idols such as those in Daniel chapter 3. All of these receive the second resurrection? No, the first resurrection. This resurrection is penultimate and awaits the second resurrection at the end of time. The first resurrection, then, is not the bodily resurrection of the saints at the end of time. That would be an important distinction to be made. The first resurrection is the ascent of the righteous souls to God at death. Certainly, this is clear from the fact that the first resurrection is linked with what? The first death, right? Physical death, as we read in chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 of this book. And what more could we say? Well, these Old Testament martyrs have learned life-giving love in the fullest sense, huh? They are made holy in their priestly self-offering and in a special way made ready for heaven. 
We too, my friends, are called to prepare ourselves in this life for heaven by giving our lives to God, whether that means through martyrdom or through daily sacrifice. That expression of holiness, secum fitse, to make holy. Holiness simply is when the presence of God lives in someone. That is holiness. That is holiness. Now, these verses provoke numerous reflections, and I do want to spend a little extra time with these verses. There is a famous uh, biblical theologian, certainly he's well known for his treatment commentary to the letter to the Hebrews, as well as to the book Revelation, and uh, that is Van Waugh, Van Waugh. And in his commentary on these verses, he says this, and so in this passage of Revelation, we are entitled to recognize not only one of the first testimonies which the church has from a very early date, accorded to its martyrs and saints, but also the foundation for the piety which has led Christians from the earliest centuries to turn to them for their intercession. If they are priests with Christ and reign with him, it is certainly not useless to address ourselves to them. You know, previous generations of Catholics probably have showed more confidence in the intercessory role of the saints and martyrs than most Christians do today. When you go back and you read the history of our faith, you see that the early Christians manifested their devotion to the martyrs and saints by venerating their relics and imploring their intercession. And often you would see that their faith was rewarded. Now, St. Augustine recounts many miracles in Book 12 of his classic work, The City of God including, interestingly enough, a blind man who was healed at the finding of the relics of the martyrs Protasius and Gervasius. You see in Europe how churches would dedicate themselves to heavenly patrons, even in small villages preserving the memory of miraculous conversions, miraculous healings, and, and deliverances from plague or conquest. And in it, they would testify to the heavenly reign of the martyrs and saints with Christ. A powerful expression we have in the deposit of faith is how essentially the church bears witness to its own holiness in her saints and in her martyrs. Now, to talk about this, I think we should also include a reflection into prayers for the dead, and with that, another brief reflection into purgatory because it just seems to be a reflection that is necessary in the light of what we're talking about right now. So, Scripture, tradition, and experience certainly suggests that not all who belong to God's people die in a state of readiness to be in God's presence. We certainly see this in, in 2 Maccabees chapter 12, verses 40 to 46. You know, Jewish rituals of mourning traditionally included prayers for God's mercy and, and forgiveness for the dead. What's interesting here, my friends, is that we see that the early Christians very much assumed this perspective and practice as inscriptions and graffiti would be found all over the catacombs. That is to say, inscriptions and graffiti that would speak to specifically prayers for the dead. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1030 and 1031, says this, and I think this is very important. All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary 
to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect. And so then it goes on to talk about where this was discussed in church history. Now, to talk about this certainly is to talk about the last spiritual work of mercy to pray for the living and the dead. To pray for the living and the dead, my friends, is a great and wondrous spiritual work of mercy. Its value goes beyond gold or pearls. I mean, what is the value of one prayer, you may ask? Well, what does James say in chapter 5, verse 16? The fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its effects. Did you hear that? James 5, 16. The fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful in its effects. Prayer, my friends, averts wars. Prayer, my friends, brings healing. Prayer causes conversion. Prayer bestows peace and serenity. Prayer brings down mercy. Sweet, necessary, and beautiful mercy. Prayer is inestimable. Prayer's value can never be fully understood. Its value can never be told. Praying for the dead, my friends, is a part of this last spiritual work of mercy that has probably suffered in recent decades, and that's why we say this is something that we probably need to rekindle a deeper sense of. You know, after a loved one dies, there are often immediate declarations that the deceased are in heaven or are in a better place. But Scripture does not say that we go right to heaven when we die. No, indeed, (laughs) there is a brief stop over at the judgment seat of Christ. What does the letter to the Hebrews say? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. What does St. Paul write in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for things done while in the body, whether good or bad. My dear friends, we are all going to have that private conversation with Jesus Christ. And the question that we have to start asking is, what does that look like? Is that going to be a conversation that we are familiar with? That is to say, are we going to recognize Jesus Christ? Or is that going to be an unfamiliar conversation? Now again, as it relates to praying for the living and the dead, we must pray for the deceased as they go to the judgment seat of Christ. Because that, my friends, is worth praying about. But what is the judgment then that is in question for those who have lived faithful lives? In such cases, the judgment is not merely about the ultimate destination of heaven or hell. The judgment in question really would seem to be, is my work in you complete? Indeed, what did the Lord say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't that an extraordinary promise? Yet most of us know that we are not in such a state now. If we were to die today, it is clear that still more work would be required. And thus, my friends, we send our faithful loved ones to judgment. Though we send them with hope, right? We are aware that finishing work may be necessary. Purgation and purification are necessary before entering heaven because what does Scripture say? Nothing impure will enter it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. Again, this is worth praying about.
It is a great work of mercy we can extend to our deceased loved ones to pray for them, to pray for them with great urgency. Brothers and sisters, we should be praying often for souls in purgatory. Surely there are joys there for them, knowing that they are on their way to heaven. But surely, too, there are sufferings that purgation must cause. What is the foundational scripture verse? Maybe some of you are listening to this thinking to yourself, but purgatory, oh, it's just all a hoax. Is it? What is Paul saying? 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15, in this classic passage. Listen closely. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Now, day here is capitalized, right? The day of judgment. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Huh? Did you catch that? If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Yes, my friends, there is fire. But thank God it is a healing fire. We could also say there are tears too. For Scripture says regarding the dead that Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eye. Again, that's Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. How consoling and merciful our prayers must seem to our beloved who have died. How prayers must seem like a gentle wind that speeds them along onward and upward towards the heavenly Jerusalem. Praying for the dead is a great spiritual work of mercy. And so as we, re- as we reflect into more generally prayers for the dead, it is important to appreciate what we are talking about here. The power of prayer. The power of intercessory prayer. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3, 5, that we are co-workers in the building up of the kingdom of God? Everything that I'm talking about, my friends, is rooted in sacred scripture. And that is why we reflect into sacred scripture as we do. Okay. And I can sense maybe for some of you, you might have some questions right about now. So please don't hesitate to email me those questions at J-H-O-L-L-J-M-J at yahoo.com. Okay. Let us turn our attention to verses 7 to 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be loosed from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are at the four corners of the earth, that is Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Okay, so at the end of the thousand years, Satan is loosed to deceive the nations. Thus, as Christ comes to replace the earthly Davidic kingdom and capital city of Jerusalem with their heavenly realities, wickedness descends on the earthly city. Satan's unbounded work of deception here seems to be evident in our Lord's condemnation of Jerusalem in his day. Jesus says his generation is in the worst state of demonic possession. What do we read in Matthew 12, verses 43 to 45? Listen to these words. When the unclean spirit has gone out of man, he passes through waterless places seeking rest, but he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Then he goes and brings with them seven other spirits more evil than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So shall it be also with this evil generation. 
Wow. Have we also not seen how Josephus testifies to this intense wickedness? Brothers and sisters, Jerusalem was supposed to be a beacon of righteousness for the nations. When it becomes evil, the nations are set for what? But shipwreck, as the devil is set free to deceive them as well. And because of this, Satan is able to deceive the nations who are called, what did those verses just say? Gog and Magog, and bring them to fight against God's people. Where else do we see Gog and Magog? Well, they were originally spoken of by who? But Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, Gog and Magog symbolize those who fight against the Davidic Messiah and destroy Jerusalem. Gog and, and Magog later become symbols in the Jewish tradition for the enemies of the Messiah. So these two symbols then represent those who persecute Jesus and God's people. They set out to destroy both Christ and the restored Israel, the church, just as Gog and Magog did. Again, we can never go back to the Old Testament enough. If we try to interpret the book of Revelation without the backdrop of the Old Testament, my dear friends, if you haven't figured this out by now, your study will fail. If you try to study any book of the New Testament without the Old Testament, it will fail. And all you have to do is just go to the footnotes to appreciate what I'm talking about now, because in any Bible that has footnotes, you're going to see the Old Testament everywhere, because what we are made to see is that the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old, that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. And again, as we've noted on more than one occasion, it's just not that he is fulfilling the old covenant in the new, but he is at once transforming it. And he calls us to share in this transformation in history in our baptism. Because remember, in our baptism, we are baptized into Christ. And as we are baptized into Christ, we actually share in his very life and love. And a one of the ways we do this, as we have been reflecting this evening, is to intercede for one another. Then indeed, we might be beacons of light in a time of darkness. And for those who might be in a fog in purgatory, we pray for them just as well, with fervent prayer, as James 5.16 says. Okay, with that, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of this time together. And we say gift because it really is a gift, something given to us, um, unmerited, right? That we might be able to reflect into the richness of your word. We are grateful for the many commentaries at our disposal and for your spirit that leads our discussion. And as always, we close. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.com.
www.ghostbusters.org. 